2006, February 24th. Today is Lecture 35, the Cosmic Distance Scale, which will begin in just a moment. 35th lecture in our series. It may interest you that we're going to be down after today's lecture. We're down to single digits remaining for this class. We really are getting towards the end. It's been a while. So today we're going to revisit a topic that we started out with really the first real lecture of this class on Astronomy 162 was how we measure stellar distances. And today's practice question, if you will, was, was actually a, a teaser for today's lecture. How do we finally finish this whole problem of measuring cosmic distances? Each place we've come, we've always sort of had to step back for a while and say, how do I really get the measurements that go into what I'm about to tell you? And that's what today's lecture is going to be devoted to, is the final and third of the lectures on the distance scale. In this case, now we're going to reach out to the greatest distances we can possibly reach to, the so-called cosmic distance scale. Measuring the cosmic distance scale has really come down to an, an effort to measure one or two parameters. The key parameter, at least for short range, is measuring the Hubble parameter. How do I actually go from, at the end of last lecture, a redshift distance, how do I get that Hubble parameter? I just simply asserted that it was 70 plus or minus 7, but there's a lot of work that goes into it to understand what the limitations of our knowledge are going to be at the large scales. What we're going to do today is we're going to start at the very beginning and work our way all the way out through what we refer to sometimes as the cosmic distance ladder. I can't go directly to cosmic distances. I have to start at home and go through a bootstrap process where each step is just like the rung of an increasingly larger ladder to get that reach into cosmic distances. We're going to review a number of, of distance measurement systems. We've already seen some of these, trigonometric parallaxes, spectroscopic parallaxes, and the Cepheid period luminosity relationship. That's where we left it. But now we have to, the Cepheids are only going to get us just so far. How do we go beyond? That's where we're going to introduce the idea of using galaxies as standard candles. Now we're going to measure not single stars, but billions of stars together, which turn them themselves into uh, luminosities of galaxies. There's some methods we can use where we look at a distance-independent property, which clues us into the luminosity of galaxies. And from that, we're finally going to get a measure, get enough reach to get out of local space, be able to get a good measurement of the total expansion of the universe, and once we have an ex measurement of the expansion of the universe, we can then use that as the first step to get real cosmic distances using the measurement of the redshift, the distance-independent property, or rather the property that is dependent on distance but easily measured, namely the recession velocity, or the apparent recession speed. So today we're going to, it's going to be kind of a, I'll confess, it's going to be a little bit of a dry lecture in that regard, that it's not going to be lots of pretty pictures and stuff like that. But this is really, if it seems like a dry topic, it's also a very essential topic. This is how everything we've, we've spoken about or will speak about in this class is motivated. This is how we get there. Now, as I've, as I've said before, I sort of started the class with distances are sort of like the key problem in astronomy. It's the one real thing we need to measure to get all kinds of physical, measure, physical ideas of what's going on. And it's the one thing that sometimes is the most elusive thing to measure because the distances are so great we have to work our way out. I can't just simply pick a method and just apply it universally. When we last left off the distance problem, we talked about measuring the distances to stars, and especially in talking about galaxies, is establishing where are the spiral nebulae? How far away are they? 
And what Hubble and others used to measure the distances to galaxies was the Cepheid period luminosity relationship insofar as they understood it. It's good, but it's still limited. Remember, we're still working with a, a standard candle. We're working with a luminosity distance measured to a single star. So we're limited by just how bright individual stars can be. And after a while, even those individual stars fade out so much that we can't see them with our best technologies. To give you sort of a good summary of what the limitations of the Cepheid period luminosity relationship are, with the current best technologies we have to apply, which is using the Hubble Space Telescope, whose point is not that it's a big telescope so much that it's sharp-eyed and it can pick out the Cepheids against the background light of the galaxies they reside in, is only going to work out to about 30 to 40 megaparsecs. That kind of gets us just to and a little bit past the Virgo cluster of galaxies. It's also, however, very costly. So even though I can do it, it costs me a lot of time. It takes hundreds of orbits with space telescope. Each orbit on the space telescope lasts about 90 minutes. So that doesn't sound like a lot, but this is one of the big projects that ate up a lot of Hubble's time over many years of the mission for, for the last few years. The other limitation we have is that it's only going to work if I want to measure the distances to spirals or irregulars, because Cepheid stars are supergiants. Supergiant tells you it's a massive star, and therefore it's a massive evolved star. So they only live an extremely short time, and you're only going to find them where star formation has occurred recently, meaning in the last couple million years. So if you want to know the distance to an elliptical galaxy, forget it. You're not going to find Cepheids in an elliptical galaxy, because ellipticals are filled with old stars. You're not going to find brand new young stars in them, and therefore not find Cepheids. So first you have to have lots of young stars, and then you have to find that tiny minority that are Cepheids. So it's a real problem. The other thing is, it really is only practical. You really don't want to measure one Cepheid. You really need to measure multiple Cepheids. You want to average out all the various difficulties of making these very, very hard measurements. And the problem with that is you're only going to be able to see Cepheids really out practically to the Virgo cluster of galaxies. So even though the full range of Cepheids might be 30 to 40 megaparsecs, it's really only a practical, accurate way to measure distances out to maybe 20 megaparsecs or so. Now, 20 megaparsecs seems like an awful lot. Light takes 60 million years to reach but from, from the distance of 20 megaparsecs to us. 60 million years, to kind of put that in a human perspective, is the amount of time that has elapsed between now and when the last dinosaurs went extinct. So it seems like a big distance, but in fact, it's just barely out of the backyard, cosmically speaking. What we need to do is we need to find other methods. We need to go beyond the Cepheid period luminosity relationship to find our way out into the depths of cosmic space. So that's what today's lecture is all about, is building this cosmic distance ladder. Now, the one of the motivation, the end goal, it's good to see where we're heading with this before we start out, is the idea of Hubble's law. Yesterday we met the Hubble law. It tells us that the recession velocity of a galaxy is proportional to the distance it is from us. And the constant of proportionality is this number h naught, the so-called Hubble parameter. So I can turn the Hubble law around since I can measure recession velocities approximately through measuring the cosmic redshift of the galaxy and simply divide by the Hubble constant, I can simply read off the distance in megaparsecs. I'm done. Well, sort of. The problem is, at least nearby, all I should have to measure is that the problem really comes down to what is the Hubble constant? What is h naught? In fact, you get an idea of what the sort of part of the problem is even 
intellectually, as I keep calling it the Hubble constant, I really should call it the Hubble parameter because the Hubble constant is not constant. It actually changes very slowly in time. The expansion rate of the universe is not the same many billions of years ago. It's not going to be the same in the future. So there's a lot going on here, and we need to somehow get around that complexity. But to get to that, we have to measure distances reliably either with something other than the Hubble constant. How do I measure the Hubble constant? I can't use an estimate of it to measure distances. So it's a circular problem. I've got to find a way to reach out. I've got to find other distance indicators. So we have to step, we have to sneak up on the problem. I can't go directly to the answer. I've got to sort of jump at it from small scales, work my way out to large scales. Like getting on my roof requires not that I jump from the ground, but I get a ladder and work my way up through the successive rungs. And that's exactly what's the essence of a bootstrap process is. We've met the bootstrap process before. It's where you start out close. You make a nearby measurement for things where you can use independent estimates of distance. Use that to calibrate the next step. The next step that you take is then based on that one, reaches out to that. And so you sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which is where the phrase comes from. Bootstrap methods are very powerful. They work very well. But there's a, there's, a, there's a caveat. And the main caveat is that you've got to be very careful with that first step. Because if you make a mistake on the first step, or you have an inaccuracy or a, a technological imprecision, at that first step, it's going to feed into all subsequent steps. A good example is, let's say I wanted to measure the size of this room, and I get a meter stick. And so I just simply walk along and I lay out the meter stick. The meter stick's not big enough to make the room, so I'm going to bootstrap it. The way I'm going to bootstrap it is to use a piece of chalk and mark off one meter on the floor and then count up the number of meters. But what if someone fooled me and gave me a short meter stick? Then my measurement inaccuracy on making that meter stick is going to feed into how good my estimate of the room size is. Now I take my estimate of the room size and I sort of use how many rooms fit into a building to estimate the building size because I can't walk through walls with my ruler, but I can look at a floor plan. Then my estimate of the building size will carry the inaccuracy in the room size, which will carry the inaccuracy in the ruler size. You get the picture. It basically builds up step by step. So why this has taken so long to work through is sometimes we get way out there but find out it's an early step that's actually le leading to all of our measurement uncertainties. So let's start up the ladder. The astronomical unit is step number one. We need to measure how big the orbit of the Earth is. The reason for that is this, this method using geometric triangulation sets the cosmic distance scale. If I don't know the mean distance from the Earth to the Sun, it's like my meter stick. It's got to be right. And in fact, it's a step we can get pretty well. The basic way in which we measure the astronomical unit is using geometric triangulation. Nowadays, what we use is radar signals bounced off the inner planets in combination with working out the orbits of the planets in great detail to get the geometry of the solar system. Once I work out the geometry of the solar system, I can actually use this method out to about 50 astronomical units or so without having to resort to things like parallaxes. As a consequence, this gives me the basis. This gives me the base of the triangle for trigonometric parallaxes. And I can actually measure the distance of the Earth to the Sun. I can measure the AU to a surprising accuracy. It really comes down to an accuracy which is less than a meter now. So we've got the number pretty, pretty well solidly placed. I'm now pretty confident that my meter stick that I'm starting out measuring the room with, if you will, is actually a high precision, approved, very accurate meter stick. 
So that's the starting point. We often forget this, but in fact, we could not measure cosmic distances until we got the very first distance in space right, the distance from the Earth to the Sun. Once I have that, I can now measure accurate trigonometric parallaxes. Because after all, trigonometric parallax is closing the triangle. If I blow the base, I blow the height. So I've got to get it right. That leads us to step two, which we've already seen, trigonometric parallaxes. Trigonometric parallaxes are calibrated in terms of the size of the Earth's orbit, in terms of the astronomical unit. The basic method of trigonometric parallaxes that I use is measuring the parallaxes to individual stars, because only stars are close enough for trigonometric parallaxes to work. And I use the Earth as a baseline. This works pretty good. From the ground, I can get out to about 100 parsecs. With a spacecraft like Hipparchos, I can get out to about a kiloparsec. Modern spacecraft that have been planned, things like SIM, Gaia, to name two, in principle could get, actually get us out to maybe tens of kiloparsecs with really working the technique down to try to measure the smallest possible angles. It's very challenging, but it's technologically possible, but we're limited to kind of the kiloparsec scales. Now what this does for us is it permits us to actually make pretty well-established measurements, as, better, as, as good as we can measure the astronomical unit, to things like luminosities of nearby stars. Because I can measure the distance, I can measure the apparent brightness, the luminosity is simply the apparent brightness times the distance squared with some four pi's and stuff like that to make the units come out right. It also lets me measure the distances to nearby star clusters. This actually works out pretty good because even though an individual star in the star cluster may not be a very good distance, because I know all the members of that cluster are at the same distance to me on, from me on average, I can take the fact that I've got many measurements, even if they have small accuracies themselves, and average across that inaccuracy to get a pretty good measurement of that cluster's distance, even though, formally speaking, a single star measurement would not be that precise. Just like if I wanted to get a, a good measurement of the size of the room, I wouldn't measure it once, I'd measure multiple times. For those of you who do construction, the old phrase, measure twice, cut once, exactly that sort of thing occurs when you measure distances to star clusters. So this allows us to establish in an independent way the luminosities of nearby objects and the distances to star clusters which can contain many objects which I might not be able to measure independent luminosities for otherwise. And that provides me the next rung on the cosmic distance scale. So trigonometric parallaxis, which we've already seen, is very important for establishing the nearby scale. The further I compress trigonometric parallaxes, the more types of objects I sort of bring within that system. So I bring them down into the first rung. I make them as accurate as my trigonometric parallaxes can work. So that's why there's this goal to push trigonometric parallaxes out to kiloparsec and tens of kiloparsec scales is to bring in more types of objects because the very, very bright objects that are visible in other galaxies are very rare. So I have to go out to very large volumes to catch a few. Now, once I've done distances to clusters and distances to individual stars, I can actually now build calibrated Hertzsprung-Russell diagrams. I use trigonometric parallaxes to build a Hertzsprung-Russell diagram for the nearby bubble of stars. I build up the so-called calibrated HR diagram in which the vertical axis is luminosity and spectral type, which is distance independent, is on my horizontal axis. This works pretty good for individual stars. I can actually take a star, 
measure its spectral type from its spectral type and its luminosity class, tell me where it should go on my calibrated HR diagram, and say, oh yeah, that's a supergiant. It should go up here at the high luminosity branch, or oh yeah, that's a main sequence star. It should go down here. The problem, of course, is I don't know the age of that star. I don't know its mass or other things I need to know. So I don't know where to place it in this rather uncertain cloud on the HR diagram. But if I measure lots and lots of stars in a star cluster, then I know that the relationships among those stars should be pretty tightly constrained by the fact those are all stars which were born together. And therefore, they have a nice cluster HR diagram. So I compare the cluster HR diagram to the nearby HR diagram. That lets me average out the individual star-to-star inaccuracies and beat down the uncertainty to get a high-precision measurement. Again, measure twice, cut once, also works in astronomy. That allows me to reach out to star clusters that are too distant to observe with normal parallaxes. And so it increases my reach out quite a ways. It actually gets me out, in many cases, quite far. It's actually a very big reach. You can get out to about 50 or 60 kiloparsecs with these methods. Beyond 50 or 60 kiloparsecs, except in some very particular circumstances, it becomes harder to use the spectroscopic parallax method, the build an HR diagram and compare it to the nearby one method. In fact, lately, we've been able to reach out in single points all the way to Andromeda, which is almost to a megaparsec with this. The problem is it gets very difficult to see individual stars, even with the Hubble Space Telescope. Bright stars tend to blend together, and so the method becomes very inaccurate. And so I'm just going to make a bald assertion here that out past about about 100 kiloparsecs, and there really isn't anything in the 100 kiloparsec range except the large and small Magellanic clouds, for which I can actually make pretty darn good cluster color magnitude diagrams, cluster HR diagrams, and use spectroscopic parallaxes to measure. Too much further than that, stars begin to blend together, and I can't tell am I looking at one star or a couple stars that just happen to be on top of each other. It's an angular resolution problem. So I can get out to just to the large Magellanic Cloud. I can get out to the nearest by irregular galaxy. So this third step of spectroscopic parallaxes is the first reach out of the galaxy. It's a limited reach. It's a specialized reach. I can only talk to the clusters of stars. But it turns out to be extremely useful to us. If I can measure the distance to globular clusters or old clusters, I can calibrate the distances to RLIRI stars. If I can find young star clusters, I can calibrate the distances to Cepheid variables. So that's the real use of this particular method here. And that brings us, of course, to Cepheids. Now, RLIRIs are kind of included in this for the short-range version, but really RLIRIs only work out to kind of Andromeda. Cepheids, they're the ones we want. They're the ones we want because they're really bright. The way we calibrate Cepheids is through a combination of things. We can do a little bit of parallaxes for Cepheids in our galaxy, but they're not very good yet. Hopefully with Sim and Gaia in the future, the next generation astrometric satellites, we can get direct parallaxes to Cepheids. And so I don't have to go through the spectroscopic parallax. I can draw them directly down into step two. But I can't do that yet with any accuracy. So I have to use this as Cepheids at step four. With Cepheids, what I do is I go out, and there's supergiants in young star clusters. I calibrate the Cepheid period luminosity relationship in the large Magellanic Cloud, in the LMC. Now, I have lots of different ways to estimate the distance to the LMC. 
Spectroscopic parallax is one of them. I got our Lyrae stars. Um, we can even use uh, light echoes from the supernova. There's, there's all kinds of different methods that have been put together to measure the distance of the LMC. And they all agree more or less. Some give you kind of a long distance, some give you kind of a short distance. That's an important distinction here. I then can measure lots and lots of Cepheids, thousands of Cepheids now in the LMC and build beautifully well calibrated period luminosity relationships. The relationship is very well defined. What I have trouble getting is the zero point. That depends upon my other methods for getting the distance of the LMC. Cepheids, as I've mentioned before, are very important to us. If I can find a Cepheid, because they're supergiants, they're very, very luminous. In principle, I should be able to see them out to 30 or 40 megaparsecs. In practice, pushing it much past 20, 25 megaparsecs is just technologically difficult. But there's no reason to believe we couldn't do this with the next generation of space telescopes out to 30 or 40 megaparsecs. So the Cepheids is really, that's the leap. That's the one that gets us out to the next level. Now, it's a great method for measuring distances to galaxies because 30, 40 megaparsecs encompasses a big chunk, not all of it, but a big chunk of the local supercluster, especially the Virgo cluster of galaxies, the biggest nearby concentration of lots of different galaxy types. The problem is Cepheids only work in spirals because they're population one stars. They're young stars. I don't find Cepheids in ellipticals. I only find them in spirals and irregulars. So it's going to be tricky to now, I can't use Cepheids to measure distances to ellipticals. That's kind of too bad because the most luminous galaxies are ellipticals. I can see the ellipticals much further away than I can see spirals in many cases. So that's a limitation. The other limitation is it really gets hard to find Cepheids. Here's a, an illustration of this. This is a galaxy in the, this beautiful spiral galaxy in the Virgo cluster called NGC 4603. This was one of the galaxies observed by the Hubble Space Telescope Key Project on Cepheids. Now, when you take a picture like this, the fuzz you see is all the faint stars, and then you get individual bright stars. If I just take a, now a small piece of this galaxy and I zoom in on it, you can see what is zo power zoom on a ga spiral galaxy. This is about maybe 18 megaparsecs away in Virgo cluster. And you can just get to the point where you can see individual super bright stars. Most of these things are actually not single stars, but star clusters. But every now and then, a little star, these little blips inside the red squares here, get your attention. And the reason you get, they get your attention is because they vary. They blink off and on in the characteristic pattern of a Cepheid star. It says, hey, look at me. I'm a pulsating supergiant of the Cepheid class. Measure my period. If you measure their period, use the period luminosity relationship to measure their luminosity. You take their, or to estimate their luminosity, you measure their apparent brightness from this picture. That, by the way, that little blob there is the Cepheid. You take the apparent brightness, you take the estimate of the luminosity based on the period luminosity relationship for the LMC, and that gives you the luminosity distance to NGC 4603. Obviously, these are very, very faint, um, so you need to measure many of them per galaxy to get a decent distance to that galaxy. That's why it takes hundreds of orbits with the Hubble Space Telescope. Yes, ma'am? Um, you would have an idea of that big bright object when you You mean like this bright thing here? No, like it's not in your, over to the left. Oh, that thing? Yeah. That's actually a star in our own galaxy. See, this is the problem. Remember, we're looking out through our own Milky Way. So you've got to be able to distinguish near from far. The usual giveaway is something that crushingly bright is either 
a star in our own galaxy, or maybe, maybe it's a supernova. Supernova are pretty distinctive because they get suddenly bright and then they fade away. So, you know, what you can do is you can see the Cepheids, but they're not the brightest thing in here. Some of these things may be amalgams of multiple stars. Some of these are clusters of stars. Hubble tried to use some of these so-called brightest stars to reach beyond the Cepheid scale. It's actually kind of an interesting question. Ooh, what's that other thing in the galaxy? It's actually a very astute question because that's exactly the trick we have to play next. What do we do when the Cepheids run out? What we do when the Cepheids run out is we need to find secondary standard candles. Objects which are so rare they probably don't exist in our own galaxy, or at least certainly there aren't any examples nearby, but they might be found in galaxies that I can measure the distances to using galaxies with Cepheids. So I use the Cepheid scale to find the distances to galaxies, and then I look in those galaxies, because I get a beautiful face-on, unobscured view in many cases, and find, ooh, what's that bright thing right there? Is that part of that galaxy? Hey, look, there are bright things like that in these other galaxies. Maybe one of those will be a standard candle. It sometimes is kind of hit or miss, to be perfectly frank. Sometimes you get one, you say, ooh, that's going to be good, and then you start finding out that they're really not very standard. They're not all the same brightness. Sometimes you get lucky. This is where the cosmic distance scale starts getting a little raggedy at the edges. So for example, we want to find objects not only that are in spirals, but that are in spirals and ellipticals. So I can use the spiral distances to calibrate standard candles that are also shared by elliptical galaxies. What I'm looking for are standard candles that are in old stellar populations, pop two stars. One of those, and I've given it yellow in italics here, is type 1a supernova explosions. You may remember back when we talked about white dwarfs, this is the other supernova. This is when you dump matter very slowly onto a white dwarf and push its mass over the Chandrasekhar mass, the maximum mass for a white dwarf. When you get over 1.4 solar masses, the star collapses, and when it collapses, it triggers a thermonuclear runaway detonation, and the star disrupts itself in a type 1a supernova explosion. Because the stars are all about the same mass, about 1.4 solar masses, and the same bulk composition, carbon-oxygen, when they detonate, they should be the same physics and therefore the same brightness. And in fact, we've observed a number of type 1a supernovae in nearby galaxies for which there are Cepheid or other decent distances, and it turns out that modulo some fine details that are not important to us here, they're pretty darn good standard candles. They're supernova explosions. When they go off, they're some of the brightest things instantaneously in the universe, which means I can see them a long, long ways away, much further away than I can see Cepheids. So type 1a supernovae is a real, real find. It's a real coup. It actually gives us something which is physically understandable as a standard candle. Now, I'll be perfectly honest with you, we don't 100% understand why they're standard candles. The story I gave you sounds plausible, but there are people who would argue with that. But empirically speaking, meaning just looking at the data, they seem to work. The other things that do it are other things that are odd. For example, planetary nebulae are very distinctive. They're when the atmosphere is puffed off of the core of a hot, low-mass star. What we find is that the brightness of the nebular emission lines, the emission lines are very distinctive. They make them stand out, turn out to top out. There's a maximum luminosity for them. So if I can measure all the luminosities of all the planetary nebulae in a galaxy and find where that luminosity tops out by comparison to planetary nebulae in our galaxy, 
in the LMC, and especially in Andromeda, I can find, oh, look, that, that luminosity is topping out at thus and such a brightness. It should be this luminosity. Difference between apparent brightness and luminosity is distance squared. What's nice about planetary nebulae is they're evolved stars. You get them for pop one, you get them for pop two. So you can find them in ellipticals. In fact, you find them better in the bulge than you do out in the disk where the stars are relatively young. Globular clusters. There's something very odd about globular clusters. They tend to have a very restricted range of brightness with a very, very standard mean. And so people have used the brightnesses of globular clusters on average as an ensemble. Globular clusters are good because it's a pile of 100,000 stars not looking for one star, as in the case of a Cepheid. So now you can see what we're doing is we're going from single objects up to special single objects like supernovae. They're transients, rare, but they're really crushingly bright individually. Or we're leveraging ourselves by using ensembles of objects where I now add up a lot of light to find these things in some way. Planetary nebulae is an example of something where I look at the statistical properties of individual objects. Globular clusters, now I'm leveraging myself because globular clusters are 100,000 stars and I can view them even when I can't see the individual stars because I see all their light added together. Okay, the way we calibrate these standard candles is by finding them in galaxies for which I have previously determined Cepheid luminosity distances. I look at nearby objects that are similar and I try to understand how they work physically and make the reach out there to refine my calibration. So now I've got the next fifth rung on the ladder by finding objects that are common to spirals and elliptical galaxies and then relating those to objects I see in galaxies for which I have Cepheid distances and to a handful of objects in our own Milky Way and Andromeda. Kind of a long explanation, but that gives you an idea of where this goes. So this, at this point, however, I have to abandon, pick a technique and use it. I have to use a combination of techniques because each one is inaccurate in its own way. So I mix and match and I look to get consistent results. And sometimes in this process, the real hopeful new method you find falls by the wayside because it gives inconsistent results. So now we have to seek multiple methods so I get multiple cross checks on my distances. All of these rely on the previous steps, especially on that Cepheid period luminosity relationship. So I have to worry about whether I get that right. And of course, astronomers being as they are human beings, they argue absolutely endlessly about the fine details of these methods. It never seems to be settled. There never seems to be an end to the arguments. But there is a slow but sure convergence over time. Some, some, some techniques rise in estimation. Some techniques fall by the wayside. The bottom line, however, is that this has so far been very successful. It's actually given us a reach now out to about 50 to 100 megaparsecs, depending upon the particular method you're using. And in fact, the type 1a supernovae have the longest reach of all. They can actually get out to billions of parsecs. These things are used primarily to now get the distances to as many of the galaxies in the Virgo cluster as you possibly can. So what we now get is a sample of every type of galaxy I can imagine in Virgo for which I have multiple independent ways of estimating distances. Furthermore, this technique is what gives us the local estimate of the Hubble parameter. What is the Hubble parameter relatively nearby within the local supercluster? So step five is actually pretty important to us. And in fact, that's where a lot of the Hubble key project was focused on, was doing all this mix and match stuff. And it took many years. It was a really heroic project. All right. 
Once I've established a set of standard candles that allows me to measure distances to individual galaxies within the, Hubble, within the Virgo cluster, not everything, but most of them, I now have examples of all different kinds of galaxies. I'm now going to reach the point where even star clusters are going to be hard to see at a distance. And so you begin to ask the question, are there properties of whole galaxies that I can exploit to learn what their luminosity should be? Now I'm going to leverage my dis luminosity distance indicator by using hundreds of billions of stars all piled together into a galaxy. What are the properties of galaxies that can be measured in a distance-independent way that correlate with their luminosity? I do this by first looking for those properties among the Virgo cluster galaxies and assume that galaxies in the Virgo cluster are just the same as galaxies far, far away. And so from there, I could put together a distance indicator from galaxy luminosities. So the basic assumption is the one we've been using all along. There's nothing special about the Virgo cluster. An elliptical in Virgo is just like an elliptical somewhere else. A spiral is just like another spiral, provided I can measure some distance-independent property. So what can I find that I can measure, regardless of how far away it is, that relates to the total luminosity, how much total light's coming out? Because then I can come up with a luminosity distance indicator. Once I do that, I can then develop a series of tools that are whole galaxy luminosity distances. And I can see galaxies a long, long ways away. Now, what you do this for, among one of the goals, is to seek a refined estimate of the Hubble constant. Because even within the Virgo cluster, we know that the local group is falling towards Virgo because there are large-scale, what we call peculiar motions or random orbital motions, even from cluster to cluster in a relatively local supercluster environment. So to really measure the expansion of the universe, I've got to reach out of local space. I've got to get out to those 100, 200 megaparsec zones to really do that measurement right. I've got to get away from local peculiarities to get into what we call the true Hubble flow. And that's the goal of this process. There's a couple of these that, are that can be done. There's two important ones that are I'm going to mention just briefly. The first of these relates the brightness of spiral galaxies to a distance-independent property. It's called the Tully-Fisher relationship for Brent Tully and somebody Fisher, I've forgotten what his first name is, who discovered this relationship for galaxies for which there were otherwise other distances. What you find is that the galaxy luminosity correlates very strongly with the rotation speed. Now, if you think about it for a second, the total rotation speed of a galaxy is related to the total mass of the galaxy. The total mass of a galaxy is proportional to the number of stars in the galaxy, so the brightness of a galaxy is also proportional to the number of stars because we see the starlight. So if you can find the rotation speed of a galaxy, you find it correlates very well, as kind of expected, with the luminosity of a galaxy. More massive galaxies are more luminous, and they rotate more rapidly. Rotation speed is distance independent because it only relies on measuring a, a um, measuring the Hubble the uh, Hubble speed, measuring the radial velocities from one side to another, measuring the Doppler effect. I don't need to know how far away it is to do that. So I measure the radio the um, rotation speed. It turns out the best way to do this is to look at it in radio wavelengths. Hydrogen, cold hydrogen gas, emits a strong, a strong emission line at 21 centimeters. We know its frequency to absolute ridiculous accuracy, and so I can measure very good rotation curves for galaxies. I can measure the total rotation speed very easily with a radio telescope, 
and I use the correlation to measure the luminosity of the galaxy for nearby galaxies. Then I go out to galaxies that are too far away for those step five techniques, measure their rotation speed, relate them to the nearby Virgo cluster speeds, and use that to calibrate their distances with Tully Fisher. The, for ellipticals, there is an analogous relationship between the total mass of the galaxy and its stellar content. It's called the fundamental plane relationship for galaxies. It relates the galaxy luminosity, the thing I want to measure, with the widths of absorption lines and the physical size of the galaxy, the sort of how fast the light falls off and fades out into the distance. I do this by measuring the absorption lines from all the stars that are piled up. As they buzz back and forth in the gravity of the elliptical galaxy, it makes the lines puff out a little bit. They get a little bit fat and fuzzy, much fatter and fuzzier than pressure could do in the atmospheres of the stars. That's a distance-independent measure. And so, not surprisingly, the more massive a galaxy is, the faster the stars buzz around, the fatter the lines get. So I've used a distance-independent property, the dynamics of the galaxy, the orbital speeds of stars as, a, as an ensemble within the galaxy, used that to estimate the mass, made some assumptions about how the total mass relates to the total number of stars, which relates to the total luminosity. I calibrate it for Virgo and then use it to reach out to more distant elliptical galaxies. So those are two examples of how I can use the bulk properties of galaxies and a distance-independent property that even makes some physical sense to use galaxies themselves as standard candles to make that final reach out to large-scale distances. Once I do that, I get a very well-refined measurement, the 10% measurement, of the Hubble expansion parameter, H0. Once I do that, I can now begin to turn around and use the recession velocity with the Hubble law to estimate the distances to galaxies. So this is the final end step. This is the best way I can get is I measure the redshift, because the redshift I can measure very easily. Rotation curves, stellar velocity measurements, those are really hard. They take a lot of effort. Whereas redshifts, literally, we've banged off nearly a million redshifts of galaxies now using specialized telescopes. So using a ha literal handful, maybe a few tens or even hundreds of objects in the best cases, I can measure these primary calibrators from steps one all the way out through step six. Once I get a good Hubble constant, all of a sudden my, my space for measurement opens up now to millions of objects. What I do with this method is very simple. I point a spectrograph at a galaxy, I measure its spectrum. I compare the, where the spectral lines are in the galaxy to spectral lines in a laboratory on Earth. The shift between them is the cosmological redshift. I use an estimate of the Hubble parameter based on the calibrations of the other previous six steps and apply the Hubble law and assume that I'm dealing with pure Hubble expansion. Now this allows us, this is the most powerful of the probes we've got, it allows us to measure distances on the very largest scales. There are lots of caveats. For example, I assume that I'm far enough away that either I'm out in pure Hubble expansion, that the orbital, galaxy, orbital motions of the galaxies among themselves is small compared to the expansion, and it falls below my inaccuracy in the Hubble constant, or I can statistically average out some of those random motions. For example, a cluster of galaxies, the orbital motions will be very large because of the mutual gravity of all those galaxies close together. So I don't really measure the distances to every single individual galaxy in the cluster. I average them together to get a grand cluster distance. In the same way that I didn't use individual spectra of stars in star clusters 
to measure distances. I use the average to get the distance to the whole cluster of stars. Same deal. This allows me to probe now out as far away as I can measure a spectrum and recognize it for an object. Now, I don't actually use the simple version of the Hubble law. I apply a full version of the Hubble law that's derived from the detailed history of the expansion of the universe. And from that, I can piece together most of the story of cosmology we'll tell next week. The current status is there are a couple of key critical areas where this is where all the work is going in. Turns out that that, that rung where we calibrate the period luminosity relationship, the inaccuracy of every subsequent step from step four is based on the inaccuracy in the distance to the Large Magellanic Cloud. So there where I said, you've got to get each rung right, it then rattles upwards. We're stuck on rung four. We're stuck not having a good, dis good consistent distance to the LMC. And so that's where a lot of people are putting a lot of effort right now, is to try to nail down the LMC distance. The other thing that people are pushing on are some of those distance standard candles, especially the supernovae of type 1A. These things can be seen so far away, they allow you extremely powerful single point measurements to jump directly from rung four out to rung seven, if you will, with the type 1A supernovae. So a lot of effort is going into trying to calibrate the type 1A system. In fact, a number of people at Ohio State have joined in with a collaboration to do this with the Sloan Digital Sky Survey is doing a supernova survey. And Darren DePoy and some of his students have been working on this for the last year and will be doing so for the next three years to really nail down the 1A system in the intermediate cosmic zone. And then, of course, there's also a lot of statistical, most statistical effort going in to get rid of these various and sundry random motions. The best estimate we have so far is that the Hubble constant is 70 plus or minus 7 kilometers per second per megaparsec. And what's been very gratifying is that for a very long time we've not gotten consistent answers, but now we're really starting to see really good consistent answers for the Hubble constant. Why do we care? Well, there's a couple of important questions. What is the current Hubble parameter tells us the current rate of expansion of the universe? And as we'll see next week, it allows me to estimate the age of the universe. It also allows me to probe at large distances the expansion history of the universe, and that's important because I can piece together the past and perhaps the future of the entire universe. And we'll tell that story next week. <laughs>